Stu Does America. BlazeTV.com slash Stu. Use the promo code Stu to save 10 bucks. Actually, I don't know if this is exactly true. If I were you, I'd give it a shot. If you use the code for the record, or no, off the record, off the record, that's what it is, off the record at BlazeTV.com slash Stu. I think right now you can save 20 bucks. Why do I think that? Because we did a Q&A live with you today if you're a Blaze TV subscriber. If you want to get on board, Give that one a shot. Maybe you'll save an extra 10 bucks. If you're watching on YouTube right now, like the video, do me a favor. Click the bell. Subscribe to the channel. Do all the things. Justin Haskins is going to be here in a minute to talk about the latest on the Great Reset, and it is really, really stunning. Uh, a second batch of classified Biden documents have been found in a whole nother place. We'll dive into that. But we start by doing Hollywood racism. Oh, yes. The Golden Globes back on the TV. Yeah, you know, they, they had that little bout of embarrassment with, <laughs> over the past couple of years where they've been dealing with some uh, issues, of course. Uh, you know, one of the big issues, they didn't have any black people at all voting on any of the awards, which, <laughs> you know, Hollywood, who, who preaches quite a bit to us about racism, uh, hmm, a little revealing. Well, they fixed that problem now, and they've done all sorts of changes, and they even had a black host last night. That's right. A person named Jared Carmichael was the host. He is, uh, in fact, he opened up uh, the broadcast yesterday uh, with this. He said, I'm here because I'm black. Now, <laughs> I mean, he's right, because I've never even heard of the guy before uh, last night. But, uh, you know, it's a little, maybe a little too on the nose. Uh, it's funny because you had this problem with race, among other. There was a lot of problems with the Golden Globes, but race was a big one. And then you're just like, well, what do we do, guys? Uh, we want to get back on TV, right? Uh, what if we get a black gay guy to host? Just throwing it out there. Great idea, Jim. Uh, you're, uh, you, you get to keep your job. We'll bring in some black, other black people to vote too, but you get to keep your gig. Don't worry about it. And it's funny because this is the what they do, right? Like they're now trying to just jam pack the Golden Globes to give themselves a little pass on the former racism, right? Like they're just like, ah, well, what if we do X, Y, and Z? Do we get a, a get out of jail free card? And this happens all the time. I mean, it's been happening forever. I can remember back in high school, uh, I took the SATs. You might say, you actually made it to your senior year in high school? I know, it's crazy. But I took my SATs, and I, uh, I have a bit of a, a thing about me where I, I, sure, maybe I would study a little bit, sure. But mainly, I wanted to understand the system, right? I wanted to understand the system so I could try to re, you know, understand it, rework it a little bit, see where the weaknesses were, and then try to exploit those weaknesses. So I did get one of those books that was like, hey, take the SATs and do really well. Here's some tips. And I read through the whole thing. That was mainly my prep for the SATs. And in there, I will never forget the, uh, the part about race. Basically, they said that they had the SATs for a long time and activist groups on the left, you know, like this is like, you know, the Jesse Jackson era, were saying, hey, these questions are all made for white guys. And there's no questions that are that that, uh, you know, African-Americans, black people can understand and, and get through. And again, that seems really racist uh, for him to say, but that's basically the tone of what he was saying. And they said, well, we are we want you to put in questions about prominent African-Americans. Right. Like, don't just make it all about whitey. OK, sure. However, one of the weaknesses of this approach is that everybody knew and the book outwardly stated this 
if you see a black person in one of the multiple choice answers, you know they can't be saying something negative about them. So if it was a question about a murderer, it can't be the black person. If it's a question about a hero, it can be the black person. Because the whole thing was designed to please people like Jesse Jackson, so they couldn't put any mentions of any bad African Americans in the study. And I remember you're going through and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure. Is it this one or this one? Well, it can't be this guy because I happen to, I remember seeing a picture of him and he had darker skin than I do. So therefore I know the truth. This is how stupid this can get. We see this a lot in TV shows. I remember watching uh, the TV show 24, which is a great show. I love 24, despite some of its issues. One of its issues was they couldn't bring themselves to allow you to see the villain as someone from the Middle East. They couldn't. Over and over again, sometimes you'd see foreshadowing of a you know, Middle Eastern character, particularly early on in a season where they, they did something wrong. But they were all, it was always at the behest of some white Russian oil magnate, you know, right? <laughs> there's always, at, the, at the top of the food chain was always some white dude who was just, just trying to get rich off of some chemical or some uh, fossil fuel. That's always where it wound up. And it was just became so utterly predictable. Even when you liked the show, you knew what was coming. The villains in the, in the movies and series were always white dudes. And you thought to yourself, this can't be a coincidence. Well... That brings me to Kamel Nanjiani. Kamel Nanjiani might be, not be a person you know. Let me show you a picture of him. He was in, uh, he's been in a bunch of stuff. The, the, the uh, I don't know. He was in, uh, what was that, the computer show on HBO? What was it called? The, yeah. Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, Silicon Valley he was in. He was in The Big Sick, a movie that he wrote about, I think, part of his life, uh, which is actually a great movie. Um, and uh, now he's had a little bit of a transformation, and uh, now he looks like this. Uh, which is, yeah, he's gone from like, hey, dumpy computer guy to jacked, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, male model. And I, I saw this picture on Instagram and I thought to myself, God, are they using my body again and putting somebody else's face on it? And then I realized, no, 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 I'm not that hairy. So that's not actually a photo of me. He really looks like that. Why does he look like that? Well, he's going to be in a superhero movie. He's going to be in a big superhero movie. He said he's, he's going to be in, uh, in a Marvel movie coming up. And he was told behind the scenes that Hollywood told them, hey, we, we're not going to cast brown people, his, his, his term, as villains. He's in uh, The Eternals, and he was talking to Esquire UK, and he said, uh, it's, it's born of good intentions, but they will not, they will not cast non-white people as bad guys. And this is such a fascinating thing to me, and it's so common these days. It really, you could say it starts with good intentions, but what it really starts with is stupidity. Nobody thinks beyond the moment they're in. Nobody thinks to themselves, hey, you know, what consequences will this action bring? I know it feels good right now. We don't want people to vilify um, uh, brown-skinned people, so just put Whitey as the villain in every single thing. And sure, it might get a little predictable, but that's the only downside. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not the only downside. You know, they, they're out there now. Hollywood is giving a hosting job, a prominent, wonderful hosting job to a pretty much unknown comic because he's black and he's gay. And at the same time, they're not giving really talented actors who happen to be brown skin, as they call it. And they're not giving them roles as villains because they don't want people to see dark skin people 
as villains. This is not a new phenomenon, but it is really, really you know, prominent right now. And it's another consequence of wokeness. We spent a bunch of time on wokeness yesterday, and while the average person numbers show aren't really embracing this nonsense, Hollywood has. They bought it hook, line, and sinker. And nobody ever thinks about the secondary consequences of these, these rules, these rules of life that they keep creating for us. I, always, I constantly come back to this one book by Thomas Sowell. And, you know, Thomas Sowell, very famous economist, uh, conservative. The, the most, you know, if you want to find a guy who's speaking common sense, who's incredibly smart, you're never going to do better than Thomas Sowell. And he wrote a book called Applied Economics, but the subtitle sticks with me all the time. Thinking Beyond Stage One. Now, when he's talking about this in the realm of economics, he's saying, okay, well, you want to raise the minimum wage because what's stage one? Well, stage one is, I guess, people who are currently earning the minimum wage will get an instant raise when the rules are changed. But beyond stage one is thinking, well, a lot of people are just going to lose their jobs. Maybe McDonald's makes kiosks with touchscreens for all of their orders because they don't want to pay a bunch of minimum wage people that much money. Maybe the cost of food goes up and that takes money out of the pockets of the same families that you're trying to help by having a minimum wage and on and on and on and on. If you think only of stage one, you wind up screwing up the world. (laughs) That is how dire the situation is. And these are minor situations in Hollywood in relation to to an entire economy and and people in poverty struggling, but they are very closely related. You know, they are stopping people from, uh, who are, you know, who are deserving actors from getting roles because they're worried that you, might be racist against a black person and then see a villain who's black and then therefore tie that villain's behavior to the entire black race. They think very little of you. They have a very low opinion of your ability to detect and decipher reality. That's very, very true. But they're also punishing the actors themselves who very well might want those roles. You know, I was reading something uh, uh, this holiday season uh, about A Christmas Story because it's still one of my favorite movies. I got three. Three I've got to watch. Well, four. Four movies I've got to watch every single Christmas season. A Christmas Story, Elf, Christmas Vacation, and obviously the greatest Christmas movie of all time, A Christmas Twist. All four of those I have to watch every holiday season. And A Christmas Story is just like, you know, it's the classic. It's on 24 hours of A Christmas Story. I have to watch it all the time. And I was reading something about it this, uh, this, uh, this uh, holiday, and they were, it, was, it was a review saying, you know, some negative things about it. And they said one of the problems with it is how racist it is. I was like, really, is it racist? I mean, I do remember, you know, the, the, the Chinese uh, turkeys scene and, you know, there were some stereotypical accents in there. Again, played by Asian people who probably really wanted the job and were probably really excited to be in a generational film like that. But OK, I could see I, I was watching that on, on TBS and thinking to myself, I can't believe they're still leaving the scene in. <laughs> it is actually shocking because of how much they've canceled over the years. But. One of the things they said is there's no black people in it. Now, this is a story about a white family. You could put black people in it if you want to, uh, if they happen to be in the neighborhood. But it's a story about a kind of a, I mean, can you have stories about white people too? Is that, is there something wrong with that? And they point out that the only time black people appear in the movie is as criminals. And that shows how racist they are. And I thought to myself, what are you 
t- is that true? Like, I don't remember seeing any black criminals in the movie. It's not, I mean, it's incredible, but this is what they're talking about. The scene where Ralphie flashes back or flashes forward to what he's going to do when he has the BB gun and he's shooting the criminals outside. Two of the four pictured here, but five criminals that show up in that scene are black. And that shows how racist a Christmas story was. Now, if you were to ask those two uh, African-American actors, hey, did you would you rather have lost that job to a a, a couple of white guys because uh, you don't want racism to be permeating through a Christmas story? What do you think their answer would be? Do you think they're happy or do you think they're sad that they were in that movie? You never know with an individual, but my guess is probably pretty happy. It's an iconic film. The same thing happens to little people. Mm-hmm. You know, because little people, not at all a demeaning term. Midget's really bad. Don't say that. But little people is better, question mark? I really, I don't even understand. I would definitely rather be called a midget than a little person. I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's just an awful term for somebody. But okay, little people, here we go. And every Christmas, you hear the same spiel. Oh, well, you, little people only get cast as elves in the, in the movies, and that's wrong, and they shouldn't be, they, that shouldn't happen. And then you see all the little people actors stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, those are our jobs. We want the elf jobs. We want the dwarf jobs from Snow White. We want those jobs. Those are our jobs. Don't you start putting tall people on those jobs. You better not put you know, seven foot three basketball players into the job as dwarfs because those are our gigs. Let people decide for themselves if they want to take these jobs. And now we're at that point where when we can play the song, if you want, everything is racist. It really is that point. Houston, uh, the Houston Texans right now are going through uh, yet another controversy. Why? Well, they fired their coach and their coach was black. Now, We had the same controversy last year. I think it was, yeah, it was almost a year ago today, February 9th, 2022. So within a month of a year ago, um, it was episode 436 of this program. And we did Stu Does the NFL's Race Problem. And we talked about how the previous coach from the Houston Texans was fired. He was black, too. Now, you can look at this story two ways, can't you? The media, everybody on ESPN seemingly says, Well, they fired a second black coach in two years. It also means they hired a second black coach in two years. What are you trying to incentivize here? If you hire a boring white guy and you fire a boring white guy, no one bothers to comment on it. You're taking all the incentives and pushing it onto, hey, you should hire boring white guys because no one's really going to pay any attention. You're not going to have any rants to go on. On the other side of this, if you hire a black coach and that coach wins three games, for the entire year, and I will say, also in this particular case, inexplicably tries to win the last game of the season, costing the franchise the number one overall pick in the draft with no benefit whatsoever. When you fire that guy, you're going to be called a racist, even if you hired him after a previous black coach. Now you're going to be a double. You've hired two black people and fired two black people. Now you're double racist. Why would you hire a black person in the first place? Now, of course, most franchises aren't going to be this calculating. They're going to hire the best person there. Why? Because billions of dollars are on the line. And it's, they care more about that than they care about dumb ESPN commentary. But it is a factor 
people look at it and say, well, why would I enter into all of this trouble? Why would I cause myself trouble? I have two equal candidates. Why would I go to the one that's going to cause me trouble? It's the same type of stuff that we talked about when Tim Tebow was in the league and, and, and why Colin Kaepernick never got another job other than the fact that he was absolutely terrible in every single way. Um, but, he, you know, the reason why no one took a chance on him to see if they could get anything out of the guy was because they knew the hassle associated was so ridiculous. And the second you let the guy go, he'd go to the media and tell you how bad you were. Last year, we had a coach in Miami who sued the league, saying they were racist. And, you know, the team was better this year without him. Does anybody go back and say, hey, wow, we were wrong about that? No. They just say it's more racist and they go to another team next time. All of this crap. It's like built-in commentary. It's like they have a, a button bar in front of them. And they have to say, uh, let's see, racist coach. Boom. And they just hit the same thing and make the same argument over and over and over again. When there are actual consequences to this, people are not incentivized to make a hire like this because they're worried about the pushback. People are, uh, are, are upset. They might uh, put the wrong person in a villain role and therefore cast your racism all over an entire generation of minorities. These are ridiculous ridiculous complaints. People are smarter than this. You're smarter than this. I'm, you know, I'm a little bit smarter than this. But I can tell you who isn't smarter than this. Hollywood, the left, the woke mafia who's trying to push this stuff on America because they haven't thought beyond stage one. If you think beyond stage one, you'll see the negative consequences of what you're doing. But then again, maybe a lot of these people are totally fine with negative consequences for America. Imagine your pet suffering because of a poor diet and being unable to tell you. I know you want to avoid that. Of course you do. So let me tell you about longevity formula from Paw Made. Paw Made is a, an all-natural health supplement made for dogs. It's uh, 23 dog-friendly superfoods, keeping your dog healthy and strong. And if you have dogs like mine, I've got, I got the whole generation thing going on right now. I've got a one-year-old little puppy, Ivy. I've got a middle-of-the-road uh, dog, a golden retriever, Piper. And I have the ancient dog, Miles, who was born actually in the late 1700s. He knew George Washington, President Miles. You have all three and you realize, okay, they all have different needs, but they all have the same desire to, number one, uh, be happy and playful and enjoy their life as much as possible, and also to make sure that they're healthy. Uh, longevity formula boosts nutrient intake, protects against toxins, and guards against premature aging. And that's important because aside from a poor diet, toxins like pesticides, mold, and air pollution can harm your dog's health. But longevity formula contains special toxin-fighting nutrients to protect your dog so they can live a happy, long healthy life by your side. Right now, there's a limited time offer for exclusively for listeners to this incredibly stupid program. For every purchase of Longevity Pro a Formula, you'll receive a free bottle of Paw Maze Hip and Joint Formula too. Miles needs that. Needs that. He should just be chugging that. We shouldn't give him anything else but hip and joint formula at this point in his life. Uh, to claim your offer, go to pawmade.com slash stew. Call toll-free 833-PAW-MADE. It's P-A-W-M-A-D-E, Paw-MADE. Pawmade.com slash stew or 833-PAW-MADE. Happy to bring in Justin Haskins. He is the editorial director of the Heartland Institute and co-author of a little book you may have heard of. 
It's called The Great Reset, Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century Fascism, written alongside our own Glenn Beck. Justin, thanks for coming back to the program, and uh, happy anniversary on the book release. Yeah, this is great. It's been a year, and, and I didn't plan this trip to coincide around. It just happened to work out. Mm. I looked at it, and you know, this is amazing. So much has happened since the book came out. We've had lawmakers all across the country start to pay attention to this. Millions of people are now understanding what the Great Reset is all about, what ESG is all about. Nobody knew what any of this stuff was before, so... I mean, I'm, I'm so happy that it worked out because I was pretty depressed in the lead up to the release of the book. I didn't have much, <laughs> much no. hope. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Because I, can, I can tell you really care about this because yeah. you immediately went to all the things that have happened because of the book and not just that it sold a crap load of copies, yeah. uh, which is great, too. Well, people, that's, that's, to some people, that matters. That does but, matter, you know, yeah. Money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Look, it's been really successful. It's one of Glenn's most successful books, yeah. and he's you know had dozens of New York Times bestsellers, so congratulations on, yeah. on being a part of that. It was, it's a great book, and it was something that I think, it was one of those perfectly timed things where everyone had questions about this new term that was coming into understanding. And I think you guys did a really good job at separating sort of the, the stuff that was out there on the internet that wasn't true. And there's a lot of that about the Great Reset. And, and focusing on, hey, this is what they're talking about, this is what they want to do, and this is why they want to do it. Can, can, for people who haven't gone through the book, can you give us like a quick outline of the book? This came out one year ago today. Yeah, yeah. So The Great Reset is a, a slogan. It's a marketing campaign by people in elite positions and financial institutions and banks and the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. And all these people got together at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in the middle of 2020 and said, we're going to have a great reset. We're going to push the reset button on the entire global economy. And here's what our vision is. Here's how we should rebuild. This is where that build back better slogan mm. that Joe Biden's always mumbling on about <laughs> that. That's where that came from, from the great reset movement. That was their term. And what the great reset is, is essentially it's a roadmap for the future. How do we rebuild our societies in a way that elites see is, you know, ideal. And uh, the, the, there's, two really big parts to it. One is big social, big uh, welfare programs, expansion of welfare programs, the stuff that we always talk about on the right, uh, you know, expanding uh, uh, single-payer health care, for example, mm -hmm. and uh, government jobs guarantees and all this kind of stuff. But the really important stuff, the really insidious thing, is this public-private partnership with corporations and banks and financial institutions working with government to push ESG, to use ESG... Uh, that's environmental, social, and governance standards. It's a social credit scoring system, similar to what they have in China, to control what people do, what people say, what products people can buy, what services they can use, what kind of stove you have in your house would might fit into that. It's kind of a new news story about gas stoves yeah. in the Biden administration. And yeah. so it, it's ESG... Um, is is sort of the tool. It's the mechanism for how we rework society. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I think we've had, a, it's been a long freaking year. I don't think people would look back and say a year ago on this day, most people hadn't even heard the term ESG, right? Almost all this education for the average person has come in the last year and still a ton of people don't know this is going on. And it's a very frustrating problem to deal with. We were talking about this a little bit on radio today and that like, there's not an easy solution. It's not like, okay, well, we just lower taxes. Or, okay, we just make government smaller. It's not that. It's, it's, it's much more insidious than that. Yeah. And, and look, insidious from our perspective, 
well designed from their perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's the genius of the system. The genius of the system is there's all these roadblocks that exist for trying to get a law passed that does something really dramatic mm-hmm. in America and elsewhere. We have the Constitution as like the ultimate roadblock, protecting individual liberties. We have state constitutions that protect it at the state level. We have all these things in the Senate and rules and committees and separation of powers and all this stuff. And at some point, what the left realized was, you know, if we could just get everybody in the private sector on board, especially in finance and Wall Street and banks and all of that, rowing in the same direction, we don't even need laws. And then we don't have to worry about all this other stuff happening. And then the problem became, well, how do we get them to do that? And then once we get them to do that, how do we make sure that the good guys are being rewarded and the bad guys from their perspective are being punished and kind of coerced into the system? Mm. And that's what ESG is. That's what all this money printing has been about, I think, for the past several years. Trillions and trillions of new dollars being pumped into the financial system, given to big corporations and others first before anybody else. Uh, it's all about making sure the economy is moving in the right direction with ESG and the Great Reset in mind. Yeah, and it's, it's just, a, it's... Because we think about, hey, we got to stop this law. Hey, we got to even talk about American culture. And we say, hey, we have to make sure that we fight these things here in America. What's really uh, insidious and really dangerous about ESG, the Great Reset, is that it can be controlled by, by places, by institutions that we have absolutely no say in at all. Can you tell us about what's going on in Europe right now? It's a big development. Nobody's talking about it. And it is going to have a massive effect on us here in America. Right. So ESG is a social credit scoring system. You put these metrics into place and then you measure companies based on these metrics. And companies get rewarded or punished, in effect, based on how well they do in this system. So in America, there's no law that says you have to adhere to a set number of ESG. It's just the private sector pushing it. Sure. In Europe, that's the way it's been, too. But now there is this proposal that has been approved by many parts of the European European Union, it's complicated, but it's almost law, not quite law yet. They're just working on the final details that would make it mandatory. It's that the government, the European Union, would create a mandatory ESG system and then force all large companies in Europe and all large companies that do business in Europe, including many American companies, iconic brands, and measure how well their entire supply chains are adhering to these ESG metrics as well. (laughs) So if you think of like Ford, for example, they would fall under this rule, or McDonald's, they would also fall under this rule. This would make them adhere to the ESG social credit scoring systems that are being put in place in Europe, because they do business in Europe, And it would also kind of coerce them to force everyone in their supply chain in every other country around the world to adopt these same kinds of principles. In other words, McDonald's needs something in their supply chain. They go to that company and say, look, you can't be our supplier anymore if you don't meet these standards that Europe has set, even though you might be in Des Moines. Exactly right. So you you could just be the... You could be the paper supplier. Yeah. You know, you could be the, the uh, a transportation company that just drives parts from a factory in Ohio to a factory in South Carolina for Ford. You're going to be caught up in all of this. You could just be a farmer that grows potatoes. You could just be, it doesn't matter. That's the genius of the system. And the, so the only thing worse than having elites controlling all of society using ESG is European elites <laughs> controlling all of society. And that's 
what's going on here. So not even American elites would be making the decisions. It would all be driven from Europe. So are there, in this particular version of ESG, I, I know a lot of the ESG stuff we talk about here in America is, you know, private companies implementing these things that are affecting people without laws. There, there is a law passed. Is there, are, what, what are the teeth behind that law? Is it something where um, you have to hit a certain score to get government contracts? Is it something that if you don't hit a certain score, they kick you out of the country and you can't do business there anymore? What, what are the teeth behind this? Yeah, so the way that it would work is, and, and it hasn't been finalized yet, so they could change sure. it, right? But the way that it would work is you have these metrics. If you're not meeting the metrics, then someone can sue you, essentially, for not meeting the metrics. Mm. And then the individual countries where you're doing business can then impose penalties on you as a company. Company. Um, and, uh, and, and what the ultimate punishment is, is like still up for grabs. But at the very least, they could fine you and basically coerce you into doing the right thing or else you can't ultimately do business there anymore would, I think, be the final goal of this whole thing. So these companies who are already adopting ESG, you know, 90% of large companies in the United States already have some kind of ESG system in place. All this is is really tweaking it so that it aligns with what they're doing in Europe anyway. And what are you going to do? Stop doing business in Europe if you're Ford? You know, stop doing business if you're McDonald's? Or are you just going to do what they tell you to do? Because that's yeah. the path of least resistance, right? It's right? going to be the cost of doing business. You're, yeah. you're, you might be annoyed by it, but you're going to go find a supplier that hits these standards. Exactly. And when you talk about these uh, these companies, let me just give you some of the, some of the names because it's going to affect your life whether you like it or not. Amazon. Apple, Microsoft, Levi Strauss, Ford, Dow Chemical, General Electric, McDonald's, Walgreens, Colt, everything, basically. Yeah. That's every aspect of our society. It's, right it's, and that's just scratching the surface. Um, you know, Glenn, when, when I sent that list to Glenn, his impression was, oh, these are the companies that are yeah. going to be... No, 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 that's no, just, no. There's examples. There's examples. There's hundreds of companies. It's potentially thousands of companies. It, the threshold is if you do 150 million euros of revenue, not profit, revenue mm. in the European Union as a whole. Every large, or almost every large company in America, the iconic brands especially, are hitting those measurements. Levi Strauss, which is not the biggest company in the world, you know, that wouldn't come to top of mind, no, right? No, not at all. It's over a billion dollars, okay, wow. or in revenue. So way, yeah. way so over. Way yeah. over the 150 million. And then there's this category that they call high risk, and to meet the high risks, if you're in a high risk industry, which is clothing, for example, is a high risk industry, <laughs> and there's a bunch of other ones that you're like, what? How is that yeah, possible? Right. Uh, it's only 40 million in revenue. 40 million. So you're talking about, you don't have to be a very big company. Again, not even profit. Small to midsize. Exactly. And you will be forced to adhere to this, and everyone in your supply chain, you're going to have to coerce them to go along with it. And so these big companies who are all doing business with each other, they're all going to be coercing each other into adopting this anyway. So even if you're not totally on board, you're going to have to be on board or you'll be destroyed, essentially. Mm. So pushing back against this, it, it strikes me as, number one, you could have some of these companies stand up and say, okay, this is crazy. You're trying to control our business. They push back. And you know, big companies have, just like they do here, a, a, a way to be able to use their influence to push back against governments. And maybe they get those rules changed. You have maybe that possibility. You have maybe, you know, the possibility that, like, we go down this road and we, I mean, you know, what, I mean, what is the other one? I mean, there, yeah. there doesn't seem like there's a lot of directions to go here. Maybe you could have the U.S. government, let's say a conservative was under control, and started pushing back to against Europe and saying, stop trying to control us. We could use our influence. But again, like, these are... 
nebulous approaches to solve this problem. It's it's really tough, and they're so. Uh, it's already so popular amongst the people who are in government in the European Union. There's three branches, you could say, of the European Union government, and all three of them have already approved some form of it. Just how radical is it going to be? Right, right. And the European Parliament, which is their legislative branch, they, uh, you know, with elected, they have direct elections, there's like hundreds or even over a thousand members or something like that. Um, they were the most radical of them all. And those are the ones that are directly accountable to the people. The rest are all appointed. And so this is popular in Europe, this idea. It's mm. not unpopular. So America, the only way for them to stop it would be to, as you said, exert its influence on them through it, a trade agreement or some kind of act of Congress or something that says, no, we're not going to allow our companies to go along with this. And then Europe would sort of have to relent because they can't stop doing business with American companies. Everything would fail. So they'd have to at least create a carve out or something. But right now, everybody in power in the White House, they love this. Yeah. They want this. So that isn't going to happen anytime soon. So it's incredibly dangerous what's going on. And the Biden administration looks at this and says, we love this because we're never going to get this stuff passed here. Let them do it. They can do all of our heavy lifting for us and we still get the results that we want. Exactly right. Like You don't need to pass a, a ban on gasoline-powered cars because you're going to have Europe's put a ban on gasoline-powered cars through their ESG system, and then everybody will then exert their pressure on the rest of the supply chain in America, and you won't have gasoline-powered cars because you can't do business with anybody. And they're not even saying, like, for example, like, uh, one way around this would say with Ford, right? Ford could say, okay, well, we're only selling our electric vehicles there. We're going to use gas-powered in America because that's what that market demands. But they're judging them on the entire company, That's so the they point. can't even get away with that, even yes. if the vehicles aren't being sold in Europe. That's exactly right. It's not a regulation in in the traditional sense where you say, well, you can't sell this here or you can't do this here. It's it's a how good of a company are you? Should you even be allowed to do business right. here? Are you a good person? Right. Essentially, is yeah. what they're is what they're doing. It's genius. Because instead of just, because you're exactly right, well, we'll just sell our, our gasoline-powered cars elsewhere. No, you won't, because then you're not a good enough company, a moral enough company for to do business in Europe at all. That's what's crazy about this. This is weird. It's so big. It's so dangerous. And it's dangerous in some ways because the intent to, I think, a lot of regular people seems pure. Right? Like, oh, well, they want to yes. make the, the world a better place. They want to make uh, the environment cleaner. Of course, this is a good thing. And they've been able to globalize that whole that, that feel good thing. And I don't know if these companies, I mean, you see what, what's happening with like Disney and Coca-Cola. I don't think they're going to be able to resist it. They're not. They don't want to resist it. And they're all making money off of it, too, because all the money that's being pumped from the Fed into the financial system and by central banks in Europe into the financial system, often with this understanding that the financial system is going to do the right thing with the money. And what does that mean? That means making sure the right people are getting the money. There's lots of evidence to suggest that that's the kind of collusion that's going on. And the way they sell it to people is they don't talk about gasoline-powered cars or they talk about freedom of speech or anything yeah. like that. They talk about child labor. And right. they say, well, should we allow this company in Europe to sell clothes here when they're doing child labor mm. in you know, the Congo or something like that, or Indonesia? No, we shouldn't. And so they pick on these topics that everybody agrees. Yeah, I don't want child labor sweatshops in Indonesia either, right? And they've now, but they've expanded it to a million different other things that most people don't have a problem with. And that's the main thing. What they're trying to do is take a market economy 
And they're trying to flip it on its head and say, normally it's what the consumers want. We react to what consumers want. Instead, that doesn't matter anymore. Consumers could all want gasoline-powered cars. We don't care. What matters is what the banks want, the financial institutions, all working hand-in-hand with government and big corporations. They decide, you don't decide. That's Mm -hmm. how the system works. Incredible. Uh, Justin Haskins, he's the editorial director of the Heartland Institute, co-author of The Great Reset, one year old today. Happy birthday, Great Reset. (laughs) Also, Glenn Beck had something to do with that book as well. Justin, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks, Stu. Yes, we figured we'd come up with an excuse to use that music today, and we have great reason for it. California University office will no longer use the word field over racist connotations. The University of Southern California's School of Social Work said it will no longer use the word field due to potential racist connotations. This is, uh, they're looking for inclusive language and practice. They've decided to turn to get rid of that uh, uh, term field and move it over to a, a term practicum. Practicum. So think of uh, uh, Chicago Bears quarterback Justin Practicum. That's who he is now. And by the way, totally unrelated, Michigan is also getting rid of the term field worker. You know, like you're a reporter out in the field. No, you're not. You're a reporter out in the practicum, which I don't think means the same thing, but that's a whole other story. Uh, They say that they cannot ignore the impact its use, the term field, has on its employees. What what impact is it exactly? This is serious, too. Formerly known as the Field Education Department. Again, you're out in the field, you're doing field research. It is now going to be called the Practicum Education Department because the word field is now racist. Not practicum, that's non-racist until the next time we do a segment like this and declare practicum racist. But for right now, just remember the simple rule. Everything is racist. Everything is racist. Every thought you have is a KKK dream. Everything is racist. Are you tired of your data being at risk? Are you tired of big tech looking over your shoulder and reading every email of yours? Uh, I know I don't like that. You probably don't either. Uh, It doesn't matter where you've been, who you met, what you're thinking. Start mail is protection against these types of things because your privacy is your privacy. It's yours. Startmail's secure email service keeps your inbox safe from unwanted spying eyes and protects you from spam. Every message can be encrypted or password protected. And when you delete an email, what do you think happens to it? It just stays in the cloud forever, right? They continue to read it. If they get hacked, it's all over the place. No, no, no. Not with Startmail. It's gone forever. You get unlimited disposable email aliases to keep your real identity hidden online. And with just a few clicks, you can easily switch from your existing email provider and start taking advantage of Startmail's enhanced privacy protection. 
Right now, you can sign up, get 50% off your first subscription year. There's never been a better time to try, to try startmail.com, S-T-A-R-T-M-A-I-L, M-A-I-L, startmail.com slash do. Join the thousands of people who have chosen Startmail for their email needs. Start with a T, S-T-A-R-T-M-A-I-L. It's startmail.com slash do. Get 50% off. I was briefed about this discovery God. and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there uh, to that office. Uh, but I don't know what's in the documents. I've, I my know. lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents not they were. Suggested I've you turned ask? over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives. And we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully mm. with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon. And uh, there will be more detail at that time. Uh-oh. Well, that coherent comment coming from our president, he was very surprised that the thing he's been criticizing Donald Trump for all these weeks, uh, he was doing too. I'm uh, just so, so incredible. Again, I'm on record. I don't care if a president has a few documents. I don't really care. They already saw the point of having a document is to know what's on the document. If you know what's on the document, if it's a letter from Kim Jong-un, uh, who cares? Who cares if you have it? I mean, I understand there are some risks, but I just don't think this is that big of a deal for Trump or for Biden, honestly. Uh, however, they tried to make it into a big deal. So that's what's interesting to me about this. The documents they're now learning are about Iran and, yes, Ukraine. Remember, Ukraine was very heavily involved with Joe Biden before we got into this whole war situation that we're dealing with now. And uh, no surprise that Joe Biden would have internal, you know, sensitive documents about Ukraine in his possession. There's literally nothing surprising about that whatsoever. What might be a little surprising to you if you happen to love and heart Joe Biden, like I know so many of you do, Biden aides have now found a second batch of classified documents at a totally different location. Yes, a small number of classified documents have been found in an office used by Biden. This is happening. What's funny about this is just because they made such a big deal about it. They said it was the most irresponsible thing that could ever happen. Biden himself said he couldn't believe that anyone could be so careless. And now he's done it twice within a week. And by the way, this was all known before the election. They just didn't tell you about it because they didn't want you to know until now. Just absolute hypocrisy on display Though, again, the underlying offenses are a bit boring. Tell me, if, if one of them sold some of these documents for heroin money, then you could, I'll, I'll wake up, I'll, I'll sound alert at that, at that point. But for right now, it's just a sleepy, sleepy story. Okay, so here's what happened. Man and a woman love each other. And when a man and a woman love each other, they have sex in the back of a car. That's how it works, boys and girls. And so a man and a woman have sex in the back of a car. It's just as wonderful and romantic as you might expect. And there's one little problem. Uh, he's got HPV. Now she's got HPV. Loving is sharing. Okay. So she gets a little upset that she's now got HPV. And she decides to say, hey, you know who should be responsible for that? That gecko, you know, from Geico. The Geico Gecko, because he's got Geico insurance on his car. I got the disease in the car, therefore pay me a million dollars. Legitimately her case. Not only does she win, but she also goes through arbitration in which they award her $5.2 million. 
However, unfortunately, uh, they vacated this arrangement now. She will not get her $5 million for getting HPV in the back of a car. I mean, what kind of country is this? You know, I thought I lived in a country where we would reward people for having sex in the back of a car and getting an STD. But no, that's not the country you live in. Joe Biden's freaking America. That's what this is. Okay? I want you to think about that and try not to have sex in a car tonight.